I thought we'd do a little bonus content here today since, uh, well, some of you people have written in and, uh, that's a couple of questions. So I put a little something together that I, I talked about I was going to do and I finally got around to it. And this is just kind of a beginning, but I thought we'd try and find some commonalities between civilizations that sort of became on the decline, successful ones that became on the decline. Now bear in mind that some of them managed to pull out of it. Others did not. But there are certain commonalities there about things that went on that I think we can see in the Western world and certainly the United States now. So that's a suggestion a couple of you folks out there that wrote me. I decided to put a few of them together, and this is just kind of a start. The first thing that you see that's a sort of a similarity between civilizations on the downswing and what's going on in the United States today is just this political instability. And, of course, that's easy to see. I mean, it's not particularly insightful. But you see this again and again. And by instability, what we mean is uh, weak leadership, which, of course, we have now. And we've had it in the past, but it, I think it's clear that this is some of the weakest leadership we've ever had right now, not only in the presidency, but look at the cabinet, the executive officers. They're terrible. Not only are they and sometimes antithetical to our constitutional standards, they're just bad at their jobs, or they don't even know what their jobs are. And so this is a real problem. And we've had weak leaders before, but they've generally had strong people in other positions or a strong leadership in the Congress. We have not particularly good leadership in the Congress. We've had terrible leadership on the Democrat side. If you look at people like Chuck Schumer and Adam Schiff in the House of Representatives and Nancy Pelosi, I mean, these people are not interested in preserving the country in a direction that it stays strong. They're interested in preserving the country in a way that keeps them in power. Most of the time, those two things are not headed in the same direction. So we do have that weak leadership. And, of course, there's corruption. that you, Government, by its nature, leads to corruption, right, because there's too much access to things. The government has power over things, so it has access to money, information that can lead to getting money, all these types of things. So the inherent temptation of corruption is always prevalent in government. But when it becomes so standardized that it doesn't raise eyebrows very much, everyone expects it, well, then you end up like a third-world country where everybody expects them to be corrupt. They just wonder how corrupt they are and how they can, you know, buy into the corrupt system with the least expense to themselves because that's how the system works. That's a direction we seem to be headed here. And the most disturbing part of that about the United States is, of course, that we've shrugged it off. Corrupt activities that used to get you run out of office immediately or certainly by the next election just get sort of passed by. Uh, look at some of the things that happened with Menendez, who's the uh, senator in uh, New Jersey, or, of course, the Biden family, or uh, Charlie Rangel when he was in Congress and pay his taxes. Just These are the sorts of things that would have come out in the past. And I'm not talking about 50 years ago. I'm talking about maybe 15 years ago, eh, a little longer than that, Charlie Rangel's position. But you would have you would have been run out of office or you would have just not been able to sustain yourself in the next election. That seems to be gone. And I think the ability for the population to shrug it off, like, well, that's just what happens for what slowly becoming some serious corruption is in and itself a problem. Not just the corruption, but it's the populace's response to it, the expectation of the corruption that not only feeds into more corruption, but it 
slowly undermines everything that's happening, right? And what does that lead to? Well, frequent changes in power. This is something you see when civilizations, if you want to call them that, nation states, uh, societies are in trouble, is there's constant changes in leadership, and not just at the top, but throughout this, you know, there's the divisiveness that goes on. We talk about it today like it's just the arguing and so forth. No, it's this push-me-pull-you thing about power. Because in the past, of course, a two-party system would struggle for power, but where they were trying to pull the power to was in a relatively narrow area, right? You pulled it a little bit to the left, or you pulled it a little bit to the right. Now the right is maybe a tiny bit further to the right, but the left is way out there. I mean, it's like if you imagine a tug-of-war, that the right is maybe five or six feet away from the, the crossover in the rope there, you know, where you're trying to pull them across the line, and the left is, you know, half a mile out there of rope they're yanking on, they're so far out. That leads to a bizarre kind of instability to where the distance between those two parties is so great. It's not the fact that, that the middle has moved, it's that uh, the true middle is still there between the original philosophies. It's just an entire philosophical bent of one party has changed so much that you have these rapid swings in power depending on who's in charge. That's not something that society's like. It's not what citizens like. They don't like to feel like that if there's a change in power, everything's going to change. That's not a healthy situation. It also leads to the next thing that you see, which is this serious economic inequality. Now, there's always economic inequality. That just That's pretty much the way societies are. What you call that, uh, you can call it what you want. I mean, in our so-called communist systems, which aren't similar to communism that Karl Marx had, in, you know, they, they just change the names. It's, you know, you're no longer uh, the czar. You're just the party secretary. But the kinds of things that you can do and the largesse that you can give yourself, it's pretty much the same. They change the names. But what keeps society stable, and we've talked about this before in the radio show, is that vast middle, having a middle class that people can rise through and and at least achieve a very comfortable life in a middle class. And that's the shopkeepers, the small business owners, people like that. Those people keep the center of gravity in a society. When they're gone, then you start having this huge inequality between people that are very poor and people that are very rich. And there's no stabilizing force in between that, right? You get these vast disparities in wealth and, of course, then resources. And something has to give in that because it can't continue to go on that way. Because even in societies where that's existed for a long period of time, in, in, at least in our parlance, uh, there has been there's a, a movement towards most of the time in successful civilizations. Remember, there's a lot of civilizations that weren't successful over time that never got rid of this. But the ones that are successful are the ones that there's a growing middle. Look at look at Britain. You know, you go from the time of uh, the divine right of kings, King James, and all this forward. Eventually, there's more of a middle class, more of the shopkeepers, as you want to call them, things like that, that give stability, that ballast to society. And when that starts disappearing, then that inequality leads to all sorts of crazy stuff, and you eventually end up with just super rich and everybody else. The other thing that you see is the military. And people forget that the integrity of a society in a nation state is predicated on the ability to protect themselves. And the military and police forces, depending on how you want to look at them, but they're, they're, they have the same job. That is to protect a certain portion of humanity, right? 
And the military's idea, uh, the idea of the military, is generally to protect and keep the integrity of the nation-state from those that would attack or want to take things from it. Of course, we all know that militaries are often used to acquire property and land and all these kinds of things. But if they can't keep the country safe from foreign invasion or threats and things of that nature, in other words, your military isn't strong enough where people feel like they can threaten you and get you to do things willy-nilly, then the military is becoming less and less useful. As societies move on, and if they haven't been in conflict for a fair period of time, they forget the necessity of a military, and they don't want to spend the money on it. And you see this in societies that fail. They often have had, if they were successful in the past, a strong military, a strong presence. In other words, a powerful fence to keep out intruders and to threaten those that would threaten us. But if it doesn't seem necessary for a long enough period of time, then you start monkeying around with it. You don't want to spend all the money on it. A standing army is really expensive. And, of course, there's a training and then all, and you people lose track of the, the, its purpose. They don't think it's necessary. I think the world will just carry on the way they experience it, no matter if you have any defense or not. They don't understand that it just takes a few bad actors, and that's the end of the story unless you can keep them out. And they stop wanting to spend money on it. They start messing around with it. They start doing other things with it as opposed, and sometimes it's turn, turn, trying to turn it internally to assert the, the will of the ruling class, but it none of that works. Eventually, your military complex breaks down and you become very weak. And once you're very weak that way, then there's a whole lot of different kinds of threats that can come through the door or your what used to be your borders, right? And the United States has weakened itself very much. We have lots of people who don't understand the purpose of the military. They've not been engaged in any kind of you know struggle of consequence where the nation is threatened in any way. They think that it just doesn't that doesn't happen anymore, so they don't need the military, and you can monkey around with it all you want to. And they don't want to spend the money on it. And we have been involved in several military conflicts: Afghanistan, the aftermath of the uh, Iraq, and you know the Kuwait invasion, and Iraq, and all of this stuff. And we haven't come out of it well. Uh, our initial attacks in these areas, and that's what they were, attacks, um, to remove power in Iraq, to what we did in Afghanistan initially, were well done. But we were unable to, in any way, address what we needed to, to keep that victory going. We couldn't, as people like to say, win the peace. Well, it's not really the peace. You're trying to create a stable situation in the country that you just had to knock some sense into, and we haven't been able to figure out how to do that. We also haven't been able to figure out how to extract ourselves from these situations. Because we we don't know what we're doing when we're in there, it doesn't seem like, to lay the groundwork for us to be able to leave. And you can you can try and institute a new governmental system. We were successful with that, by the way, in Japan after World War II, and to some extent in Germany. But we haven't been successful with it really anywhere else uh, since then. We haven't, you know, Korea, South Korea was not that big of a challenge since they're already fighting the North Koreans. And since then, we have had no luck. We certainly haven't any luck in Vietnam, any places like that. And Iraq is not a whole lot better off than it was without with Saddam Hussein. I mean, at least they don't have the craziness of Hussein and the Ba'athist Party. But we really didn't establish anything there. Afghanistan is rapidly turning into the same thing that it was before we invaded. And we've extricated ourselves at enormous cost and gotten very little out of it. I mean, to some extent, we might have been better to go in there and decapitate leadership 
and let them know that uh, we're not going to be messed with and then go home and essentially tell them, you know, we're not, don't make us come back here. But our military has just, it's suffered in these situations. It's suffered through a lack of resolve. It's suffered through a lack of planning about what we were going to do about things. And then, frankly, we have just ran away from situations in Afghanistan and so forth, uh, left, you know, billions and billions of dollars of equipment, resources, and in some cases money, to say nothing about our embassy in Afghanistan itself, uh, in foreign hands. That's the kind of military deterioration that is a hallmark of a society on the downswing. Immigration, all of you know out there the problems. You you can only absorb so many as a percentage of your population of individuals that have little to do with your culture, don't speak your language, aren't familiar with your mores, don't have the same goals, and have not been integrated in your society. When that group of people comes in in a large enough volume, and this has happened in society after society. Of course, we can always think of Rome, you know, when they started having the uh, Vandals and the Goths and so forth coming across the Danube because they abandoned their military, essentially, didn't think they needed them. Uh, and they couldn't absorb them. And, and instead of absorbing them and changing them, they just were overrun eventually. And they were such a broken society by the time they were overrun that it's not a surprise at all. But you can only handle a certain percentage of your population that is foreign-born, foreign-speaking, and has a completely different outlook on things. doesn't mean they couldn't turn into good citizens. I mean, some the great citizens in some of these civilizations, just like Rome and some of these others, were some of the were the Gauls and people that they had actually conquered a hundred years ago, but they've been integrated into society. We're not requiring any of that. We're not really, you know, assisting anybody in that. We're just letting people come live here, and that's it. And without that ability to absorb people in society, come up with a coherent and integrated society, which, by the way, is really difficult, and it's only been done successfully, really, by us moderately successful with Rome, uh, mainly through coercion, but still moderately successful. And they also brought a lot of, you know, sanitation, education and stuff to places like that. To say nothing about trade. But we're the most, far and away, the most successful. The other one, of course, might be what people try in India. India is much more multicultural in its own way than people are aware of, and it struggles. So, but we've been the most successful and we're not doing a very good job right now and we we can only handle so much at any given time and we've just abandoned that idea and that's a very commonality very much of a commonality between uh, civilizations that are struggling and of course the last thing is what you see in infrastructure and the public services and most of the time money starts getting spent on other things than roads bridges public services that we that everybody uses not just social services, but public services that everybody uses, police, fire, uh, medical medical services, roads, as we said, all these kinds of things. Uh, they start getting sucked into the black hole of entitlements because when you get enough of these other problems going, then the way people stay in power is by buying votes. And they need more and more money to buy votes. And they also need to essentially you know, scrap what's going on in some of the infrastructures because – a lot of times, uh, you can take a bunch of money out of the roadway construction and spend it to buy votes, and people don't notice it for a couple of years till the roads are a mess and no one's done anything about it. Infrastructure and public services going downhill is a strong indication of societal 
disintegration. And we see that now. Now, I would like to say in, in closing on this that in a number of times, when people recognize what's going on and find better leadership and commit themselves to this, they've managed to come out of it and sometimes come out of it very well. Uh, but that's going to be up to us. If we continue to let this happen and see these things grow, then there's some sort of horizon out there where we'll go over it and it'll just, all the forces will be too great. There'll be too much momentum with them. It'll be hard to get them back. There'll be some sort of, some sort of discombobulation of society and they'll have to be reintegrated in some way. And who knows what that'll look like. The people that would like that idea of about reintegrating it, I don't think it's something we would particularly enjoy. Certainly I wouldn't live in. But that's just some observations, folks. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon.